pod here. Today, I'm joined by Craiglin Masters, who is the author of How to Unlock and Activate the Wisdom of Others and the former CEO of Assurance Insurance based out of Atlanta, USA. In that role, he led the business from a $2 billion size to a $5 billion size over his period of being the CEO of the public listed organization. And in this conversation, we talk about the moment he woke up one morning to see on the news on TV, a headline that was suggested that the industry he was in was about to go into freefall. As he describes himself in this conversation, that thumb-sucking fetal line position as the CEO led to some soul-searching, some deep conversations, some experimentation, and humility-based experimentation. We talk about humility. We talk about learning ecosystems. We talk about wisdom. He talks about wisdom is the intersection between knowledge and experiences. And we talk about how COVID is allowing people to re-engage with their sense of purpose, re-engage with a sense of learning, and re-engage with a sense of humility, which he purports to be one of the biggest accelerants of leadership effectiveness. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. But you'll never surrender. We were at the top of our game. I mean, things were going really well, and if the kind of the rug gets jerked out from under you, it's not as much fun the next day. It's like, I'm leading this. Why wasn't I prepared for that? And if that doesn't bring you to some level of humility, then you're never going to get it. It just became just so glaringly obvious to me that this is the big stumbling block. It wasn't just me. It was for most leaders. That's first step of just admitting we don't know everything. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Craig, to the latest episode of Leadership Diet. Joining me from Puerto Rico. How good is that? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited about our conversation today. I'm actually working here, so let's not make fun <laughs> of that. I'm working say. in Puerto Rico. That's what they I'm looking at the beach behind you. It looks fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, one of the reasons I was interested in chatting with Craig is I had a read of your book, Unstuck, which is how to unlock yeah. and activate the wisdom of others. And the, the, the title really interested me. So I want to do a bit of a dive into that in a few minutes. Sure. But let's let's go back to early in your career. Um, you were the CEO of Assurant Insurance in Atlanta, I believe. Yeah, that's right. And you took it on as like a two billion dollar business, so by no means a small business. Right. And you one of your one of your aspirations was to how, how do you grow a, a mature business, and then suddenly you hit some roadblocks. Yeah. Tell us about the role, and then tell us about uh, some of the roadblocks you started hitting along the way. Yeah, no, I grew up in the company uh, pod, and it, it was a little bit unusual. I mean, I ended up spending 27 years there, which is almost like a freak show these days for careers. I mean, nobody does that, but the company kept morphing and growing. So I, I stayed, and, and as you said, I guess I missed a meeting one day. I got to be CEO for uh, for 11 <laughs> years, actually, or as right. a public as a public company. Unfortunately, we measure them in quarters, right? So I got to be CEO for 44 quarters, as I like to say. But yeah, the, the, in the story was quite dramatic from the standpoint we're in a fairly straightforward product line and some insurance products. And because of some regulatory changes in the U.S., it got shut down almost overnight. It was called credit insurance. 
And there really wasn't a product problem with our product, but there wasn't some lending and predatory lending, they called it in the U.S. And so it got shut down and and literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue went away almost overnight. And so that was my introduction to you better find new stuff and it's better to find it in advance, not what happened to me. And so we literally had to morph the company eventually into a warranty and service contract company and did that. It was somewhat painful, but we did it and became really successful with it, morph that using the same skill set into the leading provider of protection for wireless devices and other electronics. And so that was sort of my journey. And it was amazing. Some really challenging stuff, but from a learning perspective, just really changed the way I thought about companies, about the future and sort of how to prepare for those sort of things. Well, if the last 18 months hasn't taught everybody that, that disruption yeah. occurs when you least expect it, I think we all know now that it does. Can I take you back to you know, the first few weeks or months when you started realizing the business as I knew it won't survive if you keep doing what we are, were doing. Yeah. What were those early realizations for you? And, and indeed, what were the kind of the, oh my God moments for you as you were, as you realized that? <laughs> I was going to ask you after I got over the panic, but again, not to be too dramatic because it is insurance, right? But, but here's the story. I mean, this thing called predatory lending was a big deal in the States and it was mostly driven by, remember Citibank in the US was the biggest consumer lender. So Sandy Weil, the CEO of Citibank at that time, they were getting in a layer, getting a lot of criticism about predatory lending. Well, we sold our credit insurance with those loans. So literally, I get up one day and watching the little news feed in the morning, and there's Sandy Weil on TV telling the whole world, the problem isn't our lending practice, it's this thing called credit insurance. So we're just going to stop selling that and this whole problem will go away. Well, you can imagine that's a really bad cup of coffee moment, right? When you're sitting there with a company that has nothing to do with it, great products, and you've got this guy saying, we're just throwing this under the bus to try to sweep it away. So that was my moment of a big rut row, as I would call it, like we've got a problem. And of course, everybody followed at that point. And the first lesson I learned to answer your question specifically is, wow, we've got it. We're, we're at a fork in the road here. I mean, I can keep panicking, which I was in my office. I call it the, uh, the some thumb sucking fetal yes. position that CEOs yes. get in when we don't know what to closed. do. And that was me curled up in the corner. There's a visual for you, but that's what we do. So I can either keep doing that or we go get our team in a room and we lock the door until we figure out what to go do next and how to communicate what we're going to do next. So we took choice B. Now that was a bumpy road, but that that's, and I remember it like it was yesterday. This was a while ago, but that was, uh, uh, I will never forget it. And uh, those are my first few days of that song. So when you are in that, uh, and I appreciate it, it's a metaphorical image, but it's a powerful one nonetheless, <laughs> you know, in that thumb sucking moment. How, how, how does anyone, but how did you specifically, you know, garner the courage to go, we need to do something different. We, we have no choice here, but we need to do something different. And none of us know what that is yet. Yeah. So here, here, here's the, the, the super transparent answer to that, which I try to be, by the way. I never understood at that point as a CEO, I should have been thinking about all these things, right? I mean, the reality is I should have had a plan B or C for the company already. You know, if this product line goes away, but we were living large, quite frankly, we were growing double digits, we're making money, people are getting bonuses, you know, you're getting accolades. And so I did it because I had to. (laughs) All right. I mean, you wake up to that news, you have to go figure it out. So I don't want to say that I was out in front of this and super smart strategically. But what it did teach me was to never be in that position again. 
right? So we did a good job, I think, of over, and it took a while, it took a year to figure this out and actually implement a lot of new things and get into the warranty business. But what it, again, it just changed the way I thought about it is, wow, I better build a process where I stay ahead of this, whether I need to or not, right? So I talk a lot about that in terms of our core business, but if we're not thinking about the new stuff, that's a technical term that, you know, consultants don't like because it's just adjacencies, it's products, it's geography. I don't care. It's just new stuff. But that's when I learned the lesson. We better be thinking about the new stuff all the time. It was a hard lesson. I have to admit, it was very hard. Just on, on you just sparked a question yeah. that we um, that I hadn't thought before. So the idea of the role you hold as CEO to always have a plan B or C or indeed to be yeah. investigating it. Do you have any sense now, Craig, based on your experience, how much of your time as a CEO today should be spent in that kind of future looking new stuff space? Well, I'll give you my just a personal opinion. And while I still have my consulting firm, I was sharing with you earlier, I'm actually back running a company that is headquartered here in Puerto Rico. Very legit. <laughs> company. Where you're working at the beach. <laughs> so I really I am working. And by the way, I'm not at the beach, so stop saying that. But 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 my personal opinion is, and this was, may sound shocking, but I think it's about half the time. I, I think yeah. it's that important. And and you said something super important a minute ago. If COVID didn't teach us anything else, and it taught us a lot, I believe, but if it didn't teach us anything else, we cannot predict the future. I haven't found anybody that voluntarily says, hey, I had it all figured out. I knew COVID was coming and we'd all be shut down for 14 months, right? Nobody. So if it didn't teach us anything, it's like, wow, disproportionate amount of time. So the way I think about it is super simple. If I'm, if I'm leading the organization, if I am the leader, whatever role that might be in your organization, please spend half of your time thinking about and trying to figure out the next step, the future, the next new stuff that you're going to go do. And then I split the other half up pretty simply for me between operations and really inspecting what we expect to happen and then people and investing in my senior yeah. team. That's that's how I think about the role. That's that's really interesting. I've, I've asked that exact question. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of about maybe 200 CEOs and invariably CEOs who've been through disruption like you have, have landed at almost identical answer to you, which it's is a, a 20, 30, 50 split, 20 on operations, 30 on people, culture, talent, 50 on, on new opportunities. So it's, it's interesting how wisdom after the fact often lands in the same place. It's, it's interesting. And it's the best way to learn though. I tell you, that's, uh, that's the wisdom-based learning that I'm so fond of. <laughs> I want to jump to wisdom in a second, yeah. but maybe if I could stay with sure. this experience. So you, so you guys realize we have to do something. Yeah. And you said it took you a year or two and it was a bumpy ride. Can you just bring us through some of the highlights or some of the key events you led your team through in order to be able to reorient the organization? Yeah, I mean, step one for us was really just that. It was bonding as a team and shutting the door, which I'm a big fan of. I'm not a big PowerPoint, formal meeting, senior team person. I like to shut the door, get the whiteboards out, the flip charts, and just try to figure it out. And we had a lot of wisdom on our team within our core business. So what we spent time on was basically mapping what we were really good at. Not what we'd like to be good at or what we thought we were good at, but honest assessment. What can we really do? And what, what other pools could we go play in or swim in? And we did that consistently. That's why I said it took about a year to get it right because we tried a number of things. We kept pushing at it. And that's when we ultimately landed on the warranty space. There were a lot of similarities and things we could leverage that we were very good at. And so that's the process we went through. And it was a lot of trial and error. And I know a lot of people talk about that, you know, fail fast, all the, and, and it's all true. I mean, it's not just words. It works. I mean, 
go analyze what you really honestly are good at and then go try some things and some, some new profit pools, markets, whatever you like to call them. And you'll know pretty quickly whether it will work. And so we did that. We landed on the warranty space. But again, it's not an overnight thing. I think I use the term heavy lifting a lot, Pod, because I think the fun stuff is the strategy and drawing the roadmaps and doing the flip charts. The hard part is the heavy lifting, which is, okay, this is the direction. Now we've got to roll up our sleeves and go build the team or morph the team or reteach them, go out to a whole new marketplace and start explaining, why are we here? Wait a minute, Assurance, this was my case study. You're a credit insurance company, right? What do you mean you're going to do my electronics warranty? Well, that's not one conversation. That's like 101 conversations. That's a lot of that's a lot of grinding and a lot of grit. That's actually when I became obsessed with Angela Duckworth's uh, research around grit, which I recommend Great. to anybody because that's what it took. Right. So that was sort of my journey that first year. In, in, in your book, you, you talk a lot about humility yeah. and, uh, and, and you, you refer to Peter Hill's notion on having a really accurate reflection of yourself, strengths and weaknesses yeah. and, you know, and a bias towards action with non-defensive learning <laughs> as some of the key things. I'm imagining, and this is, I'm leading to a question here, I'm imagining over that year of experimenting, that required you to lean into humility. Absolutely. A whole lot more than you, than you might have beforehand. A, yeah. is that true? And B, if so, can you tell us about it? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true, and it's when this this topic became really a heart-level, meaningful thing to me, which is, again, we were at the top of our game. I mean, things were going really well, and it, the kind of the rug gets jerked out from under you. It's not as much fun the next day. You know? I mean, <laughs> it, it, and, and you kind of look, wake up and go back to my personal journey on this. It's like, well, I'm, I'm leading this. Why wasn't I prepared for that? And if that doesn't bring you to some level of humility, then you're never going to get it. And so that was my first experience. I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but I've had plenty of those in my work life. I've gotten a chance to be humbled by a lot of stuff that I tried and didn't work. And, and so I became a little bit obsessed, quite frankly, with this topic. The more I learned about leadership, the more I worked with my team. And then once I left public company life and started working with you know CEOs all over the world and our little methodology, it just became just so glaringly obvious to me that this is the big stumbling block. It wasn't just me. It was for most leaders. That first step of just admitting, we don't know everything. Just be humble about it. It's okay. It doesn't mean that we're not working hard or we don't care or we're not trying. It just means we have our own swim lanes of stuff and and we just don't know everything. But that certainly was the wake up call for me, which I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful for. As hard as it was originally, I'm very grateful for that. I love, I love in your book, you, you refer to the timeline of disruption, how, ex- how it has accelerated in, our, in the last 50 years. And you have a, a lovely reference, which I've never seen before, is that telephone landlines took 75 years to hit 50 million users. Angry Birds, the app, took 35 days yeah. to hit 50 million users. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, uh, when I read it, I went, oh my God, that's, that's true. And, and that's therefore, you know, not expecting to be disrupted or not planning for disruption is, is, is actually quite naive when you, when you see that so clearly. I think it is. And I, you know, and is that trend going to continue? I, I mean, I don't see why it wouldn't. I mean, I think it's even faster now. And I look at post COVID pod. I mean, 
even what we're doing right now, and we're just not talking to each other, we're on Zoom or one of these platforms, and we didn't do this 12 months ago. It's how we operated all of a sudden. So I think it's just here to stay. It's probably going to es- escalate in our, you know, my kids of four kids and for their generation, I think it's going to escalate. And I just look at that and go, well, well, let's stop talking about that. And let's, again, as leaders, isn't it our role to do something about it? Right. Not that it's going to be perfect or not that we have the 100 percent solution for the new stuff. But that's back to that 50 percent. Let's spend the time preparing for it. And all those, you know, fun examples you'll use in the book. I mean, there's tons more. I just picked the ones that I sort of like. They're just in there because there's kind of sad stories, iconic companies that didn't do that, which most of them we've all heard of and we know the stories. But that's where I think history is very important to us. It's like, let, let's not be Kodak right? or Sears or, you know, some of these iconic brands that just didn't go to the next thing and had all the ability to do it, all the capabilities, all whatever, right? And just didn't. Yeah. So I, I think it's really important. I don't think it's going away. And I don't, when you brought up the angry, I don't even know why. I can't remember why I used angry birds. I think having four kids, that must've been top of mind. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a really great illustrative example of, of the speed of disruption and the impact it can have. That's for sure. I mean, it's interesting your comment about, about, you know, the, the iconic brands. I mean, one, one view of business is that there's a natural life cycle for all businesses and the majority, you know, uh, hit a life cycle earlier. Yeah. And uh, certainly uh, you and I both have experience in family owned businesses and they're, right. they're tend to have a life cycle of two generations as an example. <laughs> right. Uh, yet, I think what you're pointing to is some of that may be because leaders' inability to stay humble and keep learning oh, might have potentially blocked their evolution. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm absolutely convinced in every one of those examples, if, if these leaders had been in a room with some wise people that were unbiased, um, they would have actually quite easily come up with the next thing. Uh-oh, the problem is, did we have the humility to even think we needed to do that? And again, I only say that everything I use is my personal experience, right? I was there, credit insurance growing double digits. I wasn't bringing the group of people in the room, which I learned later to do, and say, hey, what's my next thing? I think we would have probably come up with the warranty space, which is what we got into, if we had done that. So it took me getting faced with exactly what some of those examples are, actual extinction, to, to go do that. You know, and that's the whole point of it. Let's just do that all the time. And especially now, I mean, again, if COVID didn't teach anything else, we don't know anymore. We don't know when those things are going to happen. You know, if you think about the regulatory environment today, tell me somebody that can predict what the political regulatory environment is going to look like 12 months from now. And, and I, I'm, I don't I don't think anybody can do that anymore. That used to be very stable when I was growing up in the insurance highly regulated space. We had 10 degrees of variability on a given cycle, a given political party. You can get that in a week a right day. now. Yeah, right? Yeah. A day is a long time in politics, but these days it's, it's five minutes is a long it's time. About, in politics, that's about right, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 You have an interesting notion. So you talk about learning ecosystems. Yeah. And I was interested in... Well, A, what are they and how are they different to learning organizations that, say, Peter Senge talked about a long, a long time ago? Because they are different from my understanding of it. Yeah, I think they're a little different. I think thematically it's complementary to, and you know, certainly a very smart guy and others that have 
have talked about and taught about learning organizations, but I come at it probably a little more granular. I mean, I'm an operator. Let me just get that off the table. I'm not a, even though I, I, I operate an advisory consulting firm, I'm really not a consultant in the traditional sense. I'm not an academic, not nearly as smart as all those guys, but it's, it's just a different perspective. So my perspective got really simple back in the example that you shared, which is, wow, that's why I got obsessed with this, this idea of wisdom. And that's where the learning ecosystem actually came from. And we got in that room, what we were really doing is saying, you know, what are we good at? And the ecosystem came about as once we decided, like, hey, maybe we should be in the warranty business. So we started drawing bubbles of the ecosystem. Well, what are the imperatives of wisdom that you would have to have to be really effective in the warranty space. That's all they are. So we draw those and we draw them all the time for clients, companies all over the place now. But here's the humility part is then we want to score the learning ecosystem, right? So if that ecosystem, and let's say one of those circles would be data analytics just to make one up. So whatever we're going to do, we have to be amazingly good at that topic. And you can make it more granular than that, but you get the idea that let's let's self-score. So what is our wisdom score? And I consider wisdom this intersection of knowledge and experience, but what, what is our score today? So here's where the humility comes in. And I have a lot of fun with this because our team does this in these exercises. And we do it pretty quickly and people don't know what we're doing. So we get them to self-score. And if you go around, if you picture an ecosystem, you go around the circle of the ecosystem and some scores are high, some are low, some are in the middle. But you know what the average score is? And again, what we're talking about is a destination to new stuff, a very important goal, right? You know what the average score is in terms of the zero to 100, our average company score on our wisdom today to get to that big, big, important goal is actually less than 60%. I've done this hundreds of times the last five years. So there's a big big learning gap then. It's a big learning gap. And that's the point of the learning ecosystem is just to be humble, just to be honest. You know, what what do we really have here and what do we not have? Because it's all fixable. It's all solvable. But here's the problem. If everything is a 90 or 95, which, by the way, when we do the exercise, everybody wants, once they realize what what we're doing, they want to go back and change the scores. That's right. I can't be seen to be deficit. (laughs) Yeah, because we were like, oh, we didn't know what you were doing. So that was actually a 90. I said, well, no, you know. It's not a 90. Your score is 58. And I always like to ask the question just to have fun. I say, okay, so let's say that this destination is you're going into a new country and that's the future of the company. Now you've scored yourself. You have a 58% chance based on the wisdom today to get there. And then the question is, okay, who in this room is going to walk down the hall and tell the chairman the good news that, hey, that big goal we've got, we've got a 58% chance of getting there. I don't think anybody gets promoted on that, right? So if we're humble enough to do that, then there's this great way to go solve for the wisdom gap. So that's the purpose of the ecosystem. That's why I said I think it's complementary to, you know, Peter and others work in terms of let's be a learning organization, but it's really granular. And, and the biggest part of it is the identification of the imperatives, but then the self-assessment. Does that make sense? That's, that's what I use it for. I love the idea. And it reminded me of a conversation I had a few weeks ago on this podcast with Rachel Frisberg from Roche. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she talked about that she runs the Asia Pacific region for this massive healthcare organization. Right. And she talked about one of the huge benefits they've had in the last 18 months in her organization, setting up what she calls peer pods, which is basically dialogue conversations with peers all over the world, Yeah, specifically set up to keep each other learning. Love that. 
whilst the application of that is not the exact same as you're talking about, it's effectively an ecosystem. In their case, an internal ecosystem. It is, yeah. I think what you're pointing to is it could well be a group of advisors who are specialists in particular areas, and we bring them into our conversations to, to learn from them with a specific destination in mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. And happy to get into some of that detail because I love what they're doing there. I would just probably suggest and maybe even argue that it has one primary flaw, which is, and and it's very helpful, but the flaw is everybody internally is biased, I believe. And because we're peers, because we're competing for jobs, because, 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 right? And the idea that peers are going to teach each other everything they know, I think is very naive in one level. They'll teach, we'll teach each other a lot, but if you or I competing for that next job and I've got a couple little pieces of secret sauce, you know, unfortunately, it gets a little bit into the sinful nature of human beings, right? I'm not sure I'm going to tell Pod everything. That may sound silly, but I think I've got enough experience in those types of things where, again, I'm not suggesting it's not helpful, and I'm glad she's doing that, and I encourage people to do it. But the secret sauce lies in the operator wisdom that's unbiased being in that conversation. And then it gets almost magical how fast we solve things. Uh, at least that's my experience. I did see in your book that you, you said when uh, you quoted somewhere, when people are given the opportunity, most people will cheat. I thought oh, that, that's a really... Uh I'm not sure, is it a cynical view of life or just a realistic view of life? But it, uh, it, you, can be, you can be the judge, but uh, <laughs> it's experiential, that's all. Let's jump to wisdom, because this is something sure. that's uh, not, not always in the title of your book, it comes through quite a lot. Well, first yeah. of all, let's just, you know, what is wisdom from your, from your experience? Like, how, how would you define it? Yeah, I, I use this simple little wisdom formula. And I actually opened the book with it, W equals K times E. And, and I think there's lots of great definitions of wisdom, but the one that I think has the most application in solving complex, challenging business stuff, right? This is what this is about. How do we get to that next step? I call it the journey from A to B. A is where we are today. B is where we got to go next, Right. So how do we get there faster and better? That's all I'm trying to solve for. And so my definition of wisdom is this unique intersection. I think when we find people that have both knowledge and experience, and it's got to be both, because I think it's relatively easy to find it individually. You know, you can find people with amazing knowledge, and that's really what dominates the traditional consulting space, right? Smartest people on the planet, if you ask me. I got a bunch of friends, you know, running the Baines and McKenzie's and all that stuff. Super smart, but no really experience doing what we're teaching. Same with the academic world, and it's very helpful. So don't get me wrong, I'm not anti that. And the same on experience. What's interesting about experience is, A lot of times, people that we think are experienced are just super lucky people, which again, I'm envious of. Let me just be transparent. I nothing wrong with that, right? I made a bet and it worked and I made a bunch of money and it looks great and everything. But is that the type of experience I'm talking about? No, no, it really isn't. It's actually back to what I said earlier, those people that have just grinding through the heavy lifting of doing this work. So what's cool, Pod, is if you, when you find people, and they're everywhere is the good news, when you find people that have that combination and we put them together in the right format and we facilitate the right conversation, 
wow, that's that changed the way I thought about leaders learning forever, right? Because it's what got me out of hot water. It's what got me into the warranty business, what got me into China, what got me into digital transfer. Any of the big stuff that I was struggling with, it was this methodology that gave us the answers. Wasn't my answers, wasn't even my team's answers. It was this methodology. So that's how I define wisdom. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. Something that you, you point to um, when you talk about wisdom uh, and it's, it's listening. And yeah. that's a topic that comes up, I suspect, on almost every single interview I do is leaders who have overcome adversity or complexity or disruption talk about their biggest learning is their ability to listen and listen yeah. deeply and listen to understand. I notice again, you, you referred to the idea of non-defensive learning, which by nature means yeah. I've got, to, if I'm going to be non-defensive, I've got to listen to your point of view with no exactly. judgment of your point of view. Is that something yeah. that you've experienced? Oh, absolutely. And and again, this is my own story. I mean, I wasn't like that until some of these hard things happened, right? I mean, and I get it. I mean, we all have some level of ego and we think we know a bunch of stuff. And when things are going well, it's hard to diffuse that. But once you hit these stumbling blocks, speed bumps, whatever you want to call them, um, I think that's when it gets very real. And that's what happened to me. It was like, well, wait a minute. You know, I've got to get to this point B now. Perhaps there are people who have done parts of this that could really help me. And so I think we kind of have to go through that. But this is a big inflection point. And, and the big part of my interviewing and my team's interviewing with with new clients for us, quite frankly, we only will work with companies that have a pretty high level of that type of humility. People that have come to the place where they literally will tell us, we're willing to sit in this room and and not facilitate, but to be a participant, to listen and learn. And then we know we can help them. But it's it's a big deal. And I think it's a big inflection point. You know, it's, it's hard for most of us. Craig, you divide your time now between a, a CEO role yeah. as well as uh, running your own consulting group. Yeah. And in fact, I, if, am I right in saying the consulting group are the ones that originally helped you and then you you, you liked them so much you bought the company? Yeah, it's a, you were one of the few people that remember the Remington commercials. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I love about my age. I, will, I, I appreciate that because most don't remember that. But it really is the guy that had the original idea. I was their first client at, at Assurance and actually help formulate how to do it. We do it in a little advisory board format. We do it in a coaching format. So I helped him do it. And, and like I said, it was so dramatic because I used it on some stuff we were struggling with. Uh, I mentioned China. I mentioned our digital transformation. And it was so impactful that I just couldn't let it go. But it was five years after I first did it that I decided to leave public company life to go do this. It, it was so, it was so impactful for me and the company had done well. And I just had this itch to go tell this story and see, I mean, I knew nothing about advisory work and my own company. I never thought about doing it. And then when it just wouldn't, I just couldn't let it go. And so I literally left public company life to go do this. And so circle back and bought the idea basically from this friend. And, and that's was the, the start of GXG almost six years ago. And uh, it's just been a blast. I told somebody, other day in a talk I was given that I do feel like I'm the most fortunate guy. I, had, I think I had the best big company job you could have. I had a great board. I got to expand globally and do all this fun stuff. 
and now I've got the best little company job. So it's uh, <laughs> very fortunate. Well, you you, you successfully doubled uh, Sherwin from yeah. when you took it over CEO to when you left. So uh, I'm imagining you'll do something similar with, with your consulting firm and your your other CEO roles. Before we come to the end of this conversation, yeah. which I've really enjoyed, I'm I am interested in the post COVID world, whenever that will start. Because we're starting not at the post COVID world yet. Not quite. We, I, th- I think we keep thinking we're there, and uh, then we're not there. As, as when we when we record this conversation today, Melbourne is going back into a lockdown oh, sorry. Uh, for seven days. Oh, so, wow. so clearly, clearly the uh, the world is not over. But I am interested from a leadership perspective. What are you noticing around leadership that we need to take into the post COVID world? I.e., what are the lessons that you're noticing today that hopefully we won't forget in a post COVID world? Uh, Number one is what we just spoke about, Pod. That's the humility thing. I mean, I I have so we have so many wonderful clients and CEOs that I work with in our coaching practice now that have just changed dramatically. I mean, if this didn't bring us to some level of humility, I don't think anything kind of will. And I hope we don't lose that because I think as a subset, what I hear every day now is it's also made so many leaders reflect on why we're doing what we're doing. And I think it's bringing purpose back into people's work life that, you know, when times are good and the accounts are just rising and, you know, our stocks are rising, it's a little harder. I think we lose some of that focus on purpose. And and I have just more wonderful people in our network now that have really been brought back to that. Quite frankly, some have switched jobs and careers, some have left big jobs to go work at nonprofits. And again, I'm not suggesting that has to happen. But the ones that are staying, I think, have a different headset of different humility and really care about the people and how we do things, not just what we do. And I get really excited about that because I've always been in the camp. We can do both. There's no reason we can't grow at the rate that we need to grow. But how we do it, we can do it the right way. And I just see that. I see that happening a lot. And I hope we I hope we keep it. It's going to be easy a year from now to kind of want to forget all this. But I hope the humility and the purpose part of this and what we're doing sticks with us. I'm with you there. I'm with you there. I'll ask two questions for you, Craig. And these two questions I ask everybody okay. in every interaction I have with them. And that is, you know, what's your favorite song or band? Oh, band is easy because the first concert I went to, and this will really, really date me, but my first concert ever as a junior in high school was the Eagles in Orlando, Florida. And here's some good trivia. The warm-up band was an unknown person. They introduced him and everybody looked at each other and said, who is that in this Guy comes out in George pants, starts playing the guitar, and it was amazing. And it was Jimmy Buffett. Nobody had ever uh, heard of him. So that's, that, those are my favorites. <laughs> fantastic. I'll, uh, I'll stick some Jimmy Buffett then on, on, on our show notes as, oh, as a tribute go. to that first concert for you. And uh, the last question I have for you, Craig, which I suspect I know the Uh-oh. answer to, but let's see where you get to. You know, if you are able to turn back time and talk to the 30-year-old version of yourself sharing your experiences, what would you be telling that person? Yeah, I think, uh, I guess two things. One, my obsession with wisdom-based learning is do your personal learning ecosystem. What are you missing to get to where you want to go? And then go seek out these wise people. The spirit of reciprocity is alive and well. Pod is a favorite part of my business model. People love to get asked to share their wisdom. And so I encourage young people all the time. And my kids are you know, going to be approaching that age fairly soon. And 
update. I just share with them nonstop. Please go find people that will share this wisdom and they will do it. And you're just different people because of it. But the second thing is, two-part answer real quick, is this research around grit. And I've had my kids and other young folks that I work with study it, learn it. You can measure it. You can take the test. And the best thing is you can get better at it. It is not a static personality trait. And for me, if you look at all the data, it's one of the highest correlators in success. So those are the two things that I would share to my 30-year-old self. I love that because I, I, I also have had the experience of um, early in my life being told, keep asking people what they know. Yeah. And, so you, and uh, so you'll be surprised how often they tell you. And uh, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Craig, thank you so much for joining us from Puerto Rico this morning. I appreciate it. And yes, you're right. You're not at the beach. I am only joking. But I, I, I do appreciate you giving us your time this morning. Well, thank you. I love your work, Pod, And what a, what a pleasure to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider. And I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.